Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. What is happening, my In The Shift listeners? I hope you're doing okay out there, wherever you are. Uh, I've had a bit of a time of it trying to get uh, a recording location sorted for today. I mean, I'm in the normal location, as in my house. But I was in, you know, down the down the back of the house here in this small room that I normally record from, and uh, the neighbourhood dog, well, Lionel's dog, over the fence. To be fair, shout out to Lionel. Um, not that I think he's a listener, but anyway, his dog was uh, Marvel. Was having a bit of a time this morning. Uh, clearly, not particularly happy with his life, and was sharing that with the neighbourhood. Uh, right by the fence, actually, which is just across from where I record. And so I moved down the other end of the house, set myself up there, and then uh, someone started doing some enthusiastic uh, gardening or construction work or chopping something down in the front house, uh, which kind of made that location no good either. So then I, I sort of quit and went and had lunch, really, and a beer, and then uh, and then kind of came back to things and found that the front location still not ideal, uh, and so I'm back in the normal spot, but Marvel, the dog, over the neighbor, over the neighbor's fence, uh, seems to have chilled out a little bit. So I think we're going to be okay, which is good. Now, um, before I get into, no, I'm sorry, that's the kind of juicy detail I know you tune in for. You know, this this is the kind of, you know, this is the stuff that gets the people going. That's been my experience so far. <laughs> um, before we get into today's kind of content, I want to briefly mention a new dimension to the In The Shift experience. That's one way to put it anyway. And that's that you can now join the In The Shift community online on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash in the shift. Now, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's an online space that allows for two main things. And the first is that you can actually sign up to financially support the ongoing work of In The Shift. So if you're finding this is something that's kind of helpful and you'd like it to keep going uh, and you have a few dollars or more, of course, uh, to to contribute to the ongoing work of In The Shift, that'd be, that'd be amazing if you wanted to jump onto Patreon and, and support the project. Um, there was kind of an initial... A generous gift that helped me to get stuff off the ground and give me the time that I needed to be able to make this happen. Uh, but that kind of season has is coming to an end. So uh, I'm looking for ways to help this whole thing move forward in a sustainable way. So if you think like that sounds like something you'd love to see happen, then uh, you can jump into Patreon. Now, the reason I'm using Patreon to do this in particular is then because of the second thing that allows us to do, which is to then create and foster an online community, perhaps where we can engage a bit more directly if you want. Uh, if you're someone like me, really, who doesn't actually particularly enjoy talking about stuff like this on public social media spaces, you know, by the, the, by those spaces just by their very nature become very public conversations and that, that can be awkward sometimes, especially if you find yourself in an environment where you don't necessarily want a whole lot of people to know the kind of things you're thinking about or talking about or having conversations. So for my uh, wonderful listeners out there who still find themselves in quite conservative environments, either friends or family or church communities, uh, and your kind of secret listeners who um, maybe email me directly or just who tune in but don't necessarily tell anyone they're tuning in, then Patreon could be a space where you can you can jump on and just by supporting uh, the work a little bit, then you can, you can find a slightly freer community where you're able to engage with other people who are listening along. Uh, but they're not public conversations for everybody to see. And... Um, so I think that's one thing that, that Patreon helps us to provide. And then that increased engagement, I think, then also gives me the chance to hear from you and what's going on and what questions are coming up that we actually need to talk about and you can actually help to shape the future work of what we're doing within the shift. And alongside of all of that, then there's a few other things in the pipeline as well. 
that through Patreon you'll get some access to. So uh, although a p- big part of me, if I'm completely honest, feels kind of awkward asking for financial backing or support, uh, perhaps that's just because of my own complicated background with ministries asking for money. But anyway, uh, it is kind of what's required to help the thing keep moving. And um, and actually, because we're able to do so with, with Patreon, part of me is kind of stoked to do this because my hope is uh, that for those of you who, who it's been real help for, it means this can actually continue and in a way that fosters more community and connection and engagement and other stuff uh, going forward. So that's the idea. Patreon.com slash in the shift. If it sounds like a bit of you, then uh, you can jump on there. You can get a bunch more information before you think about what you, whether you'd like to sign up or not. Okay, so on to the important stuff really for today, and that's that in the last episode, if you've listened to it, you may remember that we began a, a, a conversation on sexuality, and in particular, how Christianity and the Christian church has related to LGBTQI people and their inclusion or exclusion in the church. And we did so by talking with my friend Ben about his own kind of personal journey of this experience for him. And I mentioned there that in, in today's episode, I want to talk really to my own theological conclusions around the subject and how I arrived there, especially as someone who, if you've been listening along for a while, will know I inherited a much more conservative, traditionalist approach to faith in general, and also along with that to LGBT inclusion or exclusion. And it was it was a very exclusionary view that I inherited as the default Christian position on this issue. And that was reinforced through certain church experiences in, into my 20s. Uh, but then I came to change my own views over time, and I, and I want to talk a bit through that process and, and why I hold to the views that I do. Uh, I have a couple of hesitations or, or reservations in actually doing this. And so I want to name those up front. And one is, one is that I don't want to treat the LGBT community as if they need me to justify their experience or existence. So what I don't want this to be is, hey, here I come to give an articulation for why you're allowed to exist, especially as you know, a cis straight guy. Um, that's not really what I'm about or hoping to do or feel that I need to do. And I don't want this in that sense then to be some kind of heroic story about how I changed my mind on this issue um, as if that centers me in the conversation because this conversation really in many respects isn't about me. It's about um, other people. The extent to which it's about me is really, it's about me to the point of, to the point of challenging my own historic exclusionary attitudes, which is a conversation that needed to happen. So um, so that's, I guess, my reservations about talking about this in the way that I am. And I don't want to do this as if my contribution is suddenly going to change the script in Christianity either. And yet, given all of that, I still do want to do the episode because I know that LGBT people, especially those who have had or still have attachments to faith traditions like Christianity, they need this conversation to keep happening. Uh, and from multiple angles. And and I want to do it because I know that there are also still people in the place that I was, you know, who maybe didn't hear it, this more conservative, um, traditionalist point of view. And my job here is not necessarily to take someone who's, that is their starting point and suddenly make them change their mind. And very rarely is someone argued into a new perspective on something like that. But I do want, again, to open up the conversation for those who are wondering, for those who are open, for those who aren't sure, for those who are trying to figure out if they can negotiate this and stay within Christianity, stay faithful to their faith tradition. Uh, I think we need more and more spaces where this conversation is opened up and had in healthier ways. And of course, there could be a multitude of responses 
from you listening to this. You know, for some of you, you might be like, yeah, of, of course. And also you should be talking about this and this and come on, get there. And then for others of you, this might be a much more difficult point of view to engage with or to hear because of your own particular religious paradigm and worldview. But my hope is that whatever the case, it's a conversation you can open yourself up to, maybe with a bit of curiosity, and see how we go. Now, the other thing I want to mention, just as kind of the caveat at the start, is that what this uh, conversation here, at least on this episode, will not be is to essentially just read a textbook Uh you know, there, there are books out there that lay out in detail um, some of the stuff that I might be referring to and talking to. So my aim is to not to essentially replace a textbook like that. Uh, there are places that do that and, and, and books that do that, and I'd recommend you read some of them if you want. But um, in, what I want to do here is just give enough detail of my own kind of changing mind and thought process for you to get a sense of how I come to the conclusions that I do and perhaps why I think those are the best conclusions to come to. Or, at least in this point of my journey, that's how I feel about it. And maybe those views will continue to evolve uh, and grow over time. So, this is episode 24 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. As I mentioned in the intro, I grew up with a very traditionalist, conservative view on sexuality. Uh, That was the viewpoint of uh, my parents, my family, my church community, and of every Christian that I knew. And um, and honestly, I I probably didn't know too much about even you know what it meant to be to be gay until I was a teenager. Perhaps Um, I was shielded from that in some respect other than some offhand comment about Freddie Mercury or something that might have happened when I was growing up. And and I suppose, you know, one of the things there is that mainstream society was only just starting to evolve on this issue as well. And so the church, in some respects, was in, in this sense, you know, in lockstep with mainstream opinion until that opinion started to change and started to shift. And, uh, and generally speaking, LGBT people were seen in some respect as perverted or corrupted or, or sinful, whatever, whatever the language might have been. That's, that's the kind of tradition that I inherited. And, and really just didn't even question for a, for a long time in my earlier life because for, for us that was synonymous with what Christians believed and we were Christians and of course that meant we had the truth and we were right and, and so that's what you accepted. And sometimes, you know, other churches would be maybe that were seen to be having public conversation. You know, as I grew into my teenage years, we'd you know would hear sometimes about church movements that were debating the issue of same-sex marriage or uh, gay inclusion in the church, whatever it might have been at the time. And, and essentially, the discussion in my church circles was: look at how those churches are no longer Christian anymore because of the kind of conversations that are happening. So, it was never seen as being a valid thing to believe or to hold to. Um, and then I guess as I continue to, to, to grow older, I, I, I enter into a, you know, after I left home, I entered into a very enthusiastic and intense and uh, large church environment that um, created a very strong subculture in which you were, again, surrounded not just by a few people, but by, but by you know, hundreds or even thousands of people who held to those same views as you. And so it didn't really seem like something to question and... Um, and that's, I guess, t- to my own 
shame and regret really, but early on in in this stage of my life, I I hadn't come to some kind of point of saying, what's going on here? Perhaps something else is happening in this conversation. And then a couple of different things um, happened at the same time for me, and, and some of this I've referred to in other podcast episodes as well, which is this kind of dual thing of entering theological study at a very similar time as to sort of getting to the age where I started to realize the world was in no way as black and white as I thought it was and that things were just not, simply not as straightforward as I had been told. And so that was happening because of life experience, both of mine and other people's. And it was also then being not just reinforced, but I I seen, in a sense, it was being um, expanded in, in my own theological study as I realized, oh man, the Christian tradition itself is deep and broad and wide and there are so many different perspectives and views within it that I didn't realize were a part of the tradition. So um, the beginning of that process still wasn't necessarily to then say, right, I've got to think about this particular you know, conversation more deeply. Really the starting point, I think, was, was, was to start transforming or to have, have transformed what I believed about God and who I believed God was and then what I thought of the Bible itself as well. And as I began to really go forward in my study, I started to recognize the way in which the Bible, you know, had kind of been sold to me as this book, which, you know, we would never say this, but essentially that the, the sense was that it was, you know, written by God and floated down from the sky, or at the very least, uh, written by people, but they were simply transcribing the words of God as they were dictated to them. But as you enter into, you know, more serious theological and biblical study, you realize this is not what's going on in the text at all. Now, I'm not saying... Uh, there's no divine inspiration or anything. That's aside from that conversation. The reality is the text is written by real people in real places at real times, located in time and place, and within a context that shaped what was being said and done. And if you didn't take this seriously, then you don't understand. Then you 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 struggle to understand the Bible well. Um, firstly, in its first instance, in its context, and then uh, struggle in the ways in which you think about how to apply and interpret that to today. Now, what this, of course, didn't mean that I suddenly said, uh, as was sometimes warned of me when I went off to do theology studies, uh, what you what you'll start to believe is that the Bible doesn't, you know, it isn't doesn't matter anymore or something like that. That's not what happened for me, but it did change the way I thought about what it meant to read the Bible well. And so, you know, I grew up reading Genesis one as this very literal science text, a point of view that I maintained right through my science degree in biomedical science and university level biology and all of that. <laughs> Um, but in studying theology and biblical studies in a serious way, realizing, oh, that's just, you know, some kind of literalist science, scientific reading of Genesis 1 is just a a nonsensical way to read this text and what's going on there. And so that that deepens your relationship with the text in, in many respects, but it does change it also. And then in this process, realizing that then the task of Christian theology and of ethics as well, which is, you know, um, is not just about saying, what does the Bible say, as if it just says one thing, you know, well, the Bible clearly teaches, or the Bible says, um, you know, that's not really the way in which you do a responsible uh, process of theology and ethics. Instead, you've got to say, you know, how how do I take this Christian faith that is unfolding in this story and continue the story? How do I live in this way? How does it shape and reshape my own views and ultimately how does this ongoing conversation that's modelled and that's begun and it's opened up to us in this particular text and this story, how does that continue? So that's one thing that's going on then. And then my view of God is getting challenged and revised 
as well. And so God is no longer the kind of the old man in the sky. But my perception of God is changing. My perceptions perhaps of how angry this or, or frustrated behind the scenes. He might be kind of loving on, on, on the surface, but, but pretty angry underneath. My perceptions of all of that were undergoing serious revision, you know. So I was moving from a faith system that that really said Christianity was all about escaping eternity and hell and getting to the heavenly gates. And actually it was instead about something much more meaningful and important here and now and about a mystical sense of connectedness with God and others and with a transforming life and with a way of being in the world that challenges oppressive and harmful and violent modes of living and how that moves into the way that we see ourselves and treat each other and the way we look at power structures and so on. All of this is this massive renovation of my faith. And it's really then, at some point in that process, and, I, and I, it's hard to actually remember specifically when, within that process, I begin to think in earnest about the impact that Christian notions of sexuality have had on LGBT people. And, you know, as I said, it's to my shame, really, and something I still feel deeply kind of sad about, is that this came quite late in my own journey of of pulling things apart and, and of deconstruction and, and, and then re-putting my faith back together again. And I wonder upon reflection if, if it had something to do with how deep the narrative was that I'd been sold, was that one stance essentially towards LGBT people was really the litmus test as to whether or not you're still a Christian. And so when that's burned really deeply into you from a very young age, you're unable to approach the conversation at all without you know fear of all kinds arising. Now, that's if that's the case for me as a straight, a straight guy, think about what the experience is like for someone like Ben, who was talking in the previous episode, uh, for whom the potency of that conversation is much more personal and real and, and directly impacting. So in some ways then, in reflection on this, maybe it makes sense that I had to allow my views of God to be reformed before I was even able to allow myself to have the conversation. And perhaps this is where much of the church finds itself now, in most parts of the church, not only is the topic of sexuality something that's seen through a very traditional and conservative lens, it's also a topic that people can't really talk about, honestly. People feel unable to have open and honest conversations about what they might be thinking, about the questions they might have, whether or not the views they hold are right or true or faithful or or anything like that. Because once you open up the conversation, then you're immediately identified as someone who's on the slippery slope, someone who's questioning one of the fundamentals and so no, might not really be one of us at all. And so regardless of your view, really, I think this reality is a real problem because it means that many church communities are actually unable to have any kind of meaningful conversation about sexuality at all, other than to remind everyone that gay and trans people and others in the queer community are definitely out of our in-group and bad. Um, and if you listen to Ben's story in the last episode, then you get an idea of, again, what that actually does to someone, especially, especially a young, vulnerable person. And interestingly, you know, and, and part of my motivation again for wanting to talk about this in this forum is because I'm working in theological study, I know that there are academics and theologians and biblical scholars teaching in seminaries who hold to less traditional views on sexuality and on um, LGBT people in the church, and yet either aren't allowed to or aren't able to talk about those in public because their job would kind of come under threat because of the church communities who send their students to those colleges who would, you know, uh, stop doing so because it would be seen as a, a place that then a threat to Christian orthodoxy. And yet ironically within those churches, some of those pastors themselves have serious questions but have no place to explore them or talk about them because their church community 
is in a space where they can do that because the people in their churches would would rebel against the pastor or the pastors or the leaders if they were to open up that kind of conversation. And yet, ironically, the people in the congregation, some of them have got a lot of questions and some of them themselves are wrestling with their own sexuality and LGBT and identity, even if they haven't come out into the public with that conversation. And so you have this weird milieu of, of people thinking and questioning and asking, but no one talking because no one feels that they're allowed to talk because if they do, they'll be outed as one of the people who holds to the wrong view. And this is just a, this is a long-term problem within, I guess, any kind of religious tradition that functions in this kind of way, but it's certainly a long-term problem within Christianity, certain forms of Christianity, and uh, has a direct impact on people's lives. Anyway, this is all where I find myself. And over the past few years, I come, uh, you know, a number of years now, have come to landing in a place of affirming LGBTQI people and their inclusion in the church and their validity as people made in the image of God and as people who have every right to bring their whole selves into faith community with others, including the fullness of Christian faith communities and churches and institutions and leadership. And so I want to talk a little bit about how I get there as someone who still reads the Bible. I I do sometimes, you know. (laughs) How do I arrive at this kind of place and still see the scripture then as some kind of sacred or shaping text? Because some people might say, well, how can you be a Christian and come to that conclusion when the Bible says what it says? And, um, And the conclusion from that then is either the Bible must be wrong and Christianity's wrong and so let's ditch religion altogether, or I'm just trying to twist a particular Christian tradition in my direction so that I can stay within it and believe what I want to believe. And um, and I don't feel that either of those particular points of view is necessary in this conversation. So for what it's worth, that's that's my argument. Now, in the first instance, if we're going to talk about this, we have to talk about the way that Christians might approach the task of ethics itself. Now, ethics is really about how we live and behave and see the world and decide on what is or isn't the right or moral or ethical thing to do in a particular situation. And in that sense, a big part of what we're hoping to do when we engage in ethical conversations in a faith tradition like Christianity is to ask big questions about what it means to be human and about the kinds of things we believe about God and about how that shapes our view of the world and ultimately what leads to human flourishing as individuals, communities and societies. And so what you find in that big conversation about flourishing and connectedness and meaning is that then in the Christian tradition, in the, in the tradition of the Christian scriptures, the language that also comes into play when we talk about ethics is, is the language of sin. And sin is a word that I'm sure if you've not been in church or you have been in church, it's a word you're going to be familiar with and I don't know what kind of emotions it brings up for you. But sin can be conceived of and talked about within Christianity in at least a couple of different ways. And so you can have this really shallow and kind of rudimentary and in fact often quite damaging definition of sin, which is to really understand it as anything the Bible says we shouldn't do. Uh, Essentially, God is there with a big list of things that are on his sin list. And he's basically like, don't do anything on this list or I'll be really upset with you. Um, And I've written the things down in the Bible so that you'll know what those things are. So please don't do them. That's a very... um, I guess that's a view of sin I probably had for a significant portion of my life, but it's a very unhelpful way of thinking about even what we mean when we use that word. And, you know, essentially it says, well, if the Bible says we shouldn't lie, then we shouldn't lie. If the Bible says we shouldn't steal, then we shouldn't steal because that's what God is telling us not to do. Um, But, of course, the challenge to this is that it's not really the way 
anyone treats the Bible, even the most fundamentalist kind of person, because there are things in the Bible that people are told to do that they definitely don't do and told not to do that they definitely do, and they think that's fine, you know, <laughs> because they might say, well, that was for a particular time and place or that was a particular context or, you know, so, so maybe Christians' responses, even fundamentalist Christians, to, to response to some of the Old Testament laws, for example, would be, well, like, yes, well, that was that was a particular time and place, and so, you know, we're allowed to eat shellfish now, even though it says you can't, or we're allowed to sew particular kinds of material together in a certain combination now, because that law was for a particular time and place. And so, uh, and this even translates through into New Testament uh, perspectives. So there are passages which talk about women needing uh, to wear head coverings when they're in church, for example. And most Christian communities, even the conservative ones, would say there's something contextual going on there. We don't just just take that and cut and paste it and apply it without thinking. And so what we find is actually wherever you sit on the spectrum, we're all always making judgments about how to take this ancient text and employ it in our conversations today about what is right and wrong. And so the question isn't, do we believe the Bible or not? You know, The question is, how do the scriptures help to offer us a way of seeing God and the world and humanness that can shape the way we make judgments about ethical questions? And so we discover in this, I think, a much more theologically robust way of thinking about the idea of sin. And Shane Clifton, a few episodes, a few episodes ago, referred briefly in our, in our conversation on disability to this idea that sin you know, is fundamentally anything that damages and corrupts human flourishing. He, he summarized that in shorthand as harm, essentially. But ultimately, that's shorthand for talking about the way in which sin is, is those things that we, that we do, that we participate in, that damage our relationship with, with God and with others and with the earth and with the ecosystem that we inhabit. Sin is most fully understood is harm toward ourselves and others in the world that we live in that damages and inhibits human flourishing, either of ourselves or others or both. And you'll see the pushback against this, the kind of the opposite to this in, in the scriptures when they speak of the greatest commandments, for example, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Or at one point, the New one of the New Testament authors, Paul, who suggests that the whole of Old Testament ethics can be summed up as love your neighbor as yourself. So then... The big question when we come to specific ethical conversations is to ask, what is loving? What leads to human flourishing? Not just for individuals, but also for communities and societies. Uh, and how do we come to these conclusions in conversation with the Christian scriptures as the shaping and sacred text? And all of that brings us back to the conversation then around sexuality and around LGBT people. So one of the things that... <laughs> the more thoughtful traditionalists on this issue speak of. And I'm, and I'm not going to really speak much to the fundamentalists who want to say, the Bible says it's wrong and evil and perverted and um, that settles it. Look, that, that kind of conversation is probably no fruit to be had. But there are more thoughtful traditionalists who ultimately say that because of the way the scriptures speak of sex and sexuality and gender, then any effort ultimately to affirm or endorse same-sex marriage, for example, is to go against the biblical vision for human flourishing, and therefore it's to engage in this deeper notion of harm, of sin. And this view essentially argues that the Bible and Christian belief sees heterosexual sex within marriage as the only appropriate place for sex, and that any sexuality that does not align with this is broken, damaged, corrupted in some kind of way. So this view is based on several things. So what I want to do is outline perhaps uh, some of the things that are there in Scripture that give rise to this kind of view 
and then give my response to that and why I think this is ultimately the not the right conclusion to draw. So firstly, and perhaps this is most importantly for traditionalists, the story of Genesis, especially in chapter 2 and 3, depicts the complementarity, uh, this is the argument, right, depicts the complementarity of Adam and Eve as partners who are designed for one another and with the fruitfulness of their relationship of bringing children into the earth. And so there's this gender complementarity here, which means that Adam and Eve, in some respects, represent uh, the fundamental um, complementarity of man and woman and that sex then within that context, within this covenantal marital context for the production of children and and human flourishing is, is the only context for healthy human sexual activity. And, uh, and then this story, I, I guess, is understood to frame the remainder of the biblical story in, re- in relation to then the ideal sexual relationship and therefore the ideal marriage, which is between a man and a woman. Um, so, so even though you could go through the Old Testament and look at uh, you know, polygamy and, and rape and abuse by some of, the, you know, some of the heroes of the Old Testament stories who, who engage in all of these practices, I think traditionalists would say, well, yes, that might be there in the stories, but ultimately that's not the fundamental vision for humankind, which we see much more clearly in these Genesis stories. That then flows through then into some of the commands against uh, male homosexual sex in Leviticus. Uh, so Leviticus, which is the kind of one of the big law books in the Torah, you know, speaks of of men not lying with men, for example. Uh, and then through into the New Testament, in the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans chapter one, Paul describes uh, this kind of male 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 sexual activity as unnatural. And his example of you know sinfulness, and uh, and then Paul in a couple of his letters, and one Timothy, and also in one Corinthians lists something related to homosexuality in Paul's list of sins that he he sort of lists as things that will cause you to not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I've kind of summarised all of that quite quickly, but that's essentially that's the argument in a nutshell. That that's what's going on in the text. There's only, you know, um, maybe six specific references to same-sex activity within the Bible. Uh, And I've just summarized them pretty much briefly there. But ultimately, they come back to that interpretation, I think, of the gender complementarity within the Genesis creation narratives. That's that's the crux of the argument. Um, And so what does the church do? If it holds to this particular kind of point of view, then what it says is that Essentially, one response might be, and this is kind of historically what the response has been and is still by some, is that the aim of the church is to basically help those with same-sex desires, for example, to reorient their desire towards heterosexuality. And in the past, and still today in some places, this is expressed through maybe conversion therapy or reparative therapy, whereby the hope is that one's sexual orientation is going to be transformed through a mixture of counselling or prayer or even exorcism, as we heard in last in the last episode. Of course, the problem with this is the evidence demonstrates that this is largely ineffective at actually converting someone's sexuality and making them straight. It's not to say that no one's ever lived a straight life as a consequence, but that by and large, that's not the result of this kind of um, process. And much worse than that is it actually found to be deeply and profoundly harmful to those who are put through it. So... It's my suggestion here then, probably if we're going to think about sin as harm and damaging of human flourishing, there's a, there's a strong case for that kind of response from the church to be framed. 
in those terms, ironically. I think what's also happened in more recent times is that some who hold still to the more traditionalist theological framework of you know, heterosexual sex within marriage is the only place for, for sexual activity. You know, I think that there are a number of those people now who would say, yes, we've got to move past conversion therapy or reparative therapy. Those things aren't helpful. They, are, they can be harmful. And the church's uh, historical stance towards LGBT people has not been helpful either. Um, they might even they might even say, look, that the Bible doesn't actually talk about sexual orientation at all. The words that are used in the original language only refer to specific acts, not to an orientation, and therefore there's no sin to being gay as an orientation, for example, but that to act on it is the problem. And so the encouragement then within this kind of movement is to say, Look, to be gay is nothing to be um, ashamed of if that's your orientation, if that's where your attraction lies. But ultimately, you can't act on that. And so the faithful Christian response is to live a life of celibacy. So there's a whole group called uh, Side B Christians, I think they call themselves, who are those who identify in some way as having um, a non-heteronormative sexual identity, sexual orientation, but who are willing to live a life of celibacy because they believe still the scriptures do not permit them to engage in any kind of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. All right. I hope that makes sense. That's kind of a a brief summary of a certain kind of viewpoint. Of course, in my own journey, and this should be pretty clear to you now, I've, I've, I've come to some different conclusions to this. And my conclusions are that the Christian tradition should not just be accepting people into community, but then requiring celibacy from them, but actually uh, fully embracing and affirming of those in the LGBT community without requiring them to either change their identity or to embrace some kind of enforced celibacy. You know, a lot of the references to celibacy within the kind of traditionalist movement, uh, they refer to these texts in the scriptures which encourage celibacy, but they encourage celibacy for those who are in some ways drawn to that, who choose that, who are gifted for that, they certainly don't imply an enforcing of celibacy upon particular people. Uh, and to do so, in fact, can be deeply traumatizing and harmful. And look, maybe, and, and I can't speak to anyone's specific experience in this, other than to say I can imagine how a 25, 30, 35 or 40-year-old person who's wrestled with their sexuality and has said, I have a same-sex orientation or same-sex attraction, for example, um, but but I'm going to stay celibate out of my faithfulness to God. I can understand how they might come to that conclusion, even if I don't think it's necessary, uh, and how they might see that as a possibility for them. But I then think about the 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid with same-sex attraction. Now, the, the moment those feelings arise, the sense of horror of realizing what this means for you, if you're within the Christian community, I might be accepted, but I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. And to realize that as soon as those feelings come to the surface, I'm destined for a life of uh, not being able to be with someone. I think that question is often missed in these kinds of conversations and needs to be considered. So what's the basis of my response to this and, and why do I respond in the way that I do? Well, I guess there's two things really to say. One is to think about those specific texts that we mentioned earlier, you know, um, in particular, maybe the Leviticus text or where Paul speaks about same-sex activity, for example, or the Sodom and Gomorrah texts that we didn't refer to. 
Um, but then the other response is to think in bigger terms about that conversation around gender complementarity. So I want to start with the the world, the ancient worldview around sexuality, how that informs the way we think about some of those texts and then come back to that notion of, of gender complementarity and the Genesis creation narratives and whether that's a helpful way to think about what's going on there. So in the first instance, what everyone seems to agree on, by and large, regardless of their point of view, is that in the ancient world, same-sex activity, in particular between men, was largely portrayed in ancient societies as being undertaken uh, in abusive contexts. So uh, masculinity in the ancient world, for example, which largely connected to your ability to be the dominant sexual partner, it was framed up in those terms. And so if you wanted to enforce your dominance over another, then actually in some kind of abusive sexual act might be carried out. And you sometimes would see this in uh, military conquest when the, the soldiers of the opposing army might be sexually you know, violated or, or, or raped or abused by the conquering army, for example. We also see this kind of abusive act in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which is kind of the classic text that's often used um, at sort of the grassroots level in the church against LGBT people, but it's it's not a story about consensual, loving, same-sex relations at all, but about a group of men wanting to gang-rape some male visitors to town. And Lot's response here, which is should be abhorrent to us now, was to say, no, 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 here, have my daughters instead to protect these male visitors, which shows, firstly, the degree to which women are held in much lower regard at this time and uh, much more easily able to be abused. And then that was the choice because the most important thing was to make sure that these men were not dominated by other men in this kind of abusive context because this would shame and weaken their masculinity and their social power. That's what's going on in that story there. Uh, it's not about some kind of consensual or loving same-sex activity. It's about power and dominance and abuse and violence. And so the Sodom and Gomorrah story sh- simply cannot and never should be used in reference to the contemporary conversations about sexuality. Then when we look at the Leviticus commands around same-sex activity, it's, again, specifically masculine, um, related, likely, to, again, this kind of um, masculine honour, this um, this understanding of masculinity within ancient societies. And the fact that when they, the ancient literature suggests that most of the same-sex activity they observed was carried out in violent and abusive contexts at that time. At least that's what they record. And so this kind of purity language gets set up in the Levitical law to try and separate the nation of Israel out from the surrounding nations by not allowing that kind of activity. What's not immediately clear to us is that we should straight away transpose that upon today. We have to, go, you know, there are all sorts of laws in the Levitical law that we don't do that with eating, like I mentioned before, eating shellfish or sewing certain kinds of fabrics together or all sorts of things in there that we have to go through a process of saying, what's going on in this text and how do we think about whether or not that's applicable and if so, how and if not, why not? Uh, and I think there's sufficient evidence, and a number of authors have gone to extensive lengths to demonstrate that what's in mind here in the Levitical texts is not the kind of consensual same-sex activity we might think about in the present, for example. Largely what's going on here is a conversation around masculinity and abuse. So that pushes us forward into then the New Testament. 
And there's two things to mention there about the Apostle Paul. Uh, One is that Paul lists a couple of times or appears to list homosexuality as a sin. But again, the words he's using here are notoriously difficult to translate. Uh, One of the words in particular that he uses in the Greek is not a word that has been used before in the Greco-Roman society, and so it had no pre-existing definition. And so there's been attempts to translate that. It only got translated as homosexuality or homosexuals in the mid-20th century. Before that, often translations referred to some kind of abusive dominant relationship or or act between um, an older man and a young boy or something like that. Um, And there's a reason why there's no language of orientation at play in these texts. And that's because in, in the ancient world and even in the first century, there's no concept of same-sex orientation or of variant sexual orientations compared to heterosexuality. In other words, people assumed that heterosexuality was the universal norm, so much so that they wouldn't have had that word for it, right? That's just the way things are. And so any kind of act outside of that were considered to be unnatural, and that's the word that Paul uses here in the Romans text, in Romans chapter 1. But yet Paul uses that word unnatural twice in his letters, once to refer to um, same-sex activity and once to refer to women having uncovered hair. And so we've got to try and think about what's going on in this time. I think largely in Paul's view, it's probably fair to summarise it as um, any kind of same-sex act were committed by those who were by nature heterosexual because there's no other option. And so... They are often actually in a heterosexual marriage, but in the Greco-Roman society, they were engaging in some kind of activity on the side, and often, as I mentioned briefly before, a Gentile older man would engage in some kind of dominance or rape over a younger male or a younger slave outside of their marriage relationship. So again, there's these power and dominance relationships uh, that are going on here that I think are being called into question by some of these New Testament texts. And again, what I don't think is in mind is the kind of consensual, loving, same-sex activity we might be talking about now. So all of that brings us back to the larger argument made by traditionalists. And um, and I think this brings us back to this argument because even the more thoughtful people from this perspective um, ultimately recognise that trying to argue a case based on those specific texts that we've just mentioned is actually uh, not really possible. Um, And so it comes back often to the Genesis creation narrative and how that shapes an entire biblical trajectory around gender complementarity that defines a Christian view on sexuality and gender, right? And so that upholds this kind of conservative understanding of sex within a heterosexual marriage. So if we think about that Genesis story. What it does is speak to the creation of a man and a woman who are given the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth here. Uh, So the conservative interpretation of that is, well, okay, what's going on here is that Adam and Eve ultimately complement one another and that's the location within which sex should take place and that in some way represents uh, something ontological, which is to do with who we are, our isness, if you like, what is a man and what is a woman. And so the claim of traditionalists here is that something is being spoken to about the very nature of masculinity and femininity or, or male and female itself and the way they complement one another and the way that ultimately leads to uh, offspring. But here's the problem with that approach. These Genesis texts emerge in the ancient world among ancient Israel as a way 
of articulating a theological vision for God and for creation and for humanness in contrast to the nations around them. Again, they're not literal texts, and I'm not saying that people hold to the conservative view, read them as such, but what they're supposed to do in their time and place is to push back beautifully, actually, and counterculturally against the creation stories of the surrounding nations, which described human beings as savages who were created to do the works of the gods, that the gods are angry and petty and violent, and that creation is this overflow of conflict. You know, you can go and read the Babylonian uh, creation story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the um, Atrahasis Epic, a number of these old creation stories from surrounding nations, which talk about violence and conflict between the gods and human beings as created out of this conflict as savages to do kind of laborious tasks that the gods didn't want to do. Instead, the Genesis texts suggest that God is good and that creation is beautiful and that all humans are created in the image of the divine and um, and then there's this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so our activity and our behavior and our reproduction and all of that is given this sense of blessing by God and it's about flourishing in the world and outworking of God's desire for humankind rather than just savages who are violent like the gods. And so what I don't think is supposed to be going on here is some kind of prescriptive definition of what a man and woman are for all time and to dictate for all time the place of sex within human relations. It's just not in the question in this time and place when this story is being written. It's not meant to be, it can't be read as being prescriptive for all of human reality. We already know that such a literalist reading of those texts doesn't account for biologically intersex people, for example, uh, the, the writers of the creation story don't have in mind chromosomal variations and genetic variations that give rise to the varieties of human experience that just don't fit that kind of very rigid and binary structure. And there's simply no way that these texts should be used as some kind of modern scientific text to prescribe people's identity and sexuality or even their gender. This kind of ethical move misses the much bigger points, I think, that are going on in the story. And then the suggestion that procreation, for example, is what human marriage and sex are ultimately about, well, that fails to take into account the large numbers of people who, for varying reasons, are actually unable to have children for themselves even within heterosexual marriage. So what does all of this mean? Well, in my view and the view of you know, increasing numbers of others, it's that the Bible as a whole isn't painting male and female marital sex as the once and for all prescription, but rather as a way of theologically articulating this beautiful vision for how we live in the world, to form covenant and relationship and connection with one another, that our activity is to be blessed by God and that we're encouraged to be fruitful. And then when we act in ways against this, to harm ourselves, to harm others, and to harm our relationship with the earth and so on, we are engaging in what the Bible names as sin. And... The real problem then being identified in the biblical texts that relate to same-sex activity is about abusive same-sex activity rather than a rejection of those with a sexuality that doesn't fit the heteronormative script. More nuanced conversations about sexuality are simply not something the ancient communities are having and so we shouldn't expect to see it present in the biblical accounts. Now, of course, we could agree that someone like Paul clearly has a primarily negative view of same-sex relations. He's a first-century Jew for whom there's very likely uh, no other response he could have or would have. There's no bigger conversation going on at that time about the complexities and varieties of expression of human sexuality and gender. But now, we have a much more comprehensive understanding of both sexuality and gender and the complicated in which ways in which these realities are inhabited. 
And so rather than trying to take the binary categories of male and female, you know, again, the presence of intersex people alone should tell us there's more going on here. There's more nuance and variation. This should all allow us to recognise the broad array of ways in which human sex, sexuality and gender are experienced by people. And so if we step back and ask ourselves the big theological questions about the, tra the trajectory of the scriptures and the kind of conversation they draw us into, well then this becomes a much more helpful way of thinking about the ethical conversations around sex and sexuality. What new information might we have now to take into consideration, as we do with all sorts of ethical conversations within Christianity? We have more scientific knowledge about sexual development than any other time in history. We, can also, we should also note that if we're going to endorse this kind of more traditionalist reading of Scripture, you can still make a strong exegetical case for slavery from Scripture. Those who wanted to overturn slavery, in fact, found that they couldn't, when they were doing so from a Christian perspective, argue based on specific texts in the Bible. They had to appeal to the bigger theological themes that are at play because those who were supporting slavery had more biblical texts on their side. And so they had to ask bigger questions about human freedom, about liberation and about abuse and domination and power that are present in the story of scriptures to say that even though, as this ancient document, it appears that it sort of upholds some notions of slavery, the movement of the story takes us to a place which undermines that way of being, which subverts it and which invites us to into a more liberating way of seeing humanness and human relationships that does not allow for the kind of dominance we see in slavery. In a similar sense, we make a case, for example, for divorce in the case of domestic violence, even though the biblical texts don't explicitly allow for it. We recognise that's the movement of the that's the movement of the story and where it takes us. Christians essentially believe, I think, or I mean it's hard to Christians believe what, what kind of statement is that, I guess. But <laughs> to some degree, you know, at least what I believe is that the, the scriptures are the result of some kind of I don't know, mysterious sacred collaboration between human beings and their experience of the divine that gives us the beginning points of a conversation for how to know the way of life and of flourishing, but it's not a manual that dictates an answer to every life scenario. The invitation is to enter into the conversation, to wrestle with it and try to be faithful to the message of Christ that's found within it and to where this points us. I mean, this actually happens not just after the text, but within the text itself. The book of Deuteronomy, near the beginning of the Bible, says that eunuchs can never be a part of the community of God's people. But the prophet Isaiah, still within the Old Testament, refutes this and says, actually, yes, they can, and that God desires it. Uh, Isaiah wants to say God's more inclusive than we thought. Levitical biblical texts commanded the Israelites to perform animal sacrifices, but the prophet Jeremiah said God never told you to do that. Then the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that animal sacrifices never made anyone right with God. They just made people feel better about themselves. So even within the biblical text itself, there's no static position here that we're invited to wrestle in the conversation. In fact, a big part of the argument of the New Testament is that when we just hammer people over the top with a static law, that actually causes human suffering. And this is one of the things Jesus most commonly identifies as sin itself, the simply plastering of the static once and for all law over people. Instead, the invitation in the New Testament is to be people who live by the Spirit, which is to allow ourselves to be open to change and to renew and to make decisions and develop depth of understanding based on our experience of God and of life and of one another, to participate in creating and fostering a world of human flourishing and ultimately the flourishing of all of creation. So, 
Here's my suggestion. In order to be faithful to Jesus, faithful to the Bible, faithful to the conversation we're invited into, and in order to be faithful to all of that, the Christian tradition needs to fundamentally change its stance towards the LGBTQI community, embrace and fully accept and affirm our beloved fellow human beings in every way, shape or form. Not only that, I think that we'll find that the presence of LGBT people in our faith communities will be a profound gift to the church, that they bring insight and perspective and experience and a richness of life and a diversity of experience that will contribute so much to who and what church communities are to be. So, there you have it. If you're interested in having more of a conversation about this, of course, you can directly get in touch. If you want some additional resources, there'll be a bunch that I'll probably suggest over on Patreon. Hey, so if you want to get into that mix, then of course, you are more than welcome. Uh, That's all for today. That's been a bit of a longer conversation. We've covered a huge amount of ground. So get in touch if you need to, if you've got stuff that's still uh, bugging you about this conversation. Until then, I'll see you next time on In The Shift.